0: Well, if you have not already, we are in 1 Corinthians 12, if you're using a black uh, Bible provided for you, that's page 959 to the back of your Bible, and we are looking at a fascinating passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians. There has been no shortage of books or articles written concerning spiritual gifts. Uh, how many of you in your past have, have even taken a spiritual gift test? Um, I may have asked this last week, but um, raise your hand high so I can tell. Um, it's one of those things where you have different questions and you answer them, and it kind of sheds light on some of your wiring, possibly where God has, has gifted you. But you know, I think spiritual gifts are one of those topics... Where we often try to focus on the details, such as what exactly does this spiritual gift mean in the New Testament? Because Paul doesn't really define all of the implications of a certain spiritual gift. And I think he does that for a reason, because that's not his point. But we often focus on these details which spiritual gifts do I possess? And if I possess A, B, and C, then what does that look like in life? And we often, in doing that, miss the big picture of the significance of spiritual gifts. And what is that significance? The fact that I, that you, are called to serve Christ. You're called to serve Christ in His body in his, the local body, and the local church. That is the big picture of spiritual gifts that we can't miss. In fact, just uh, this week, I, I uh, ran across an article from a, a lady by the name of Laura D. Entremont. I probably have butchered that name. The title of her article is, "The Best, The Better Way to Discover Your Spiritual Gifts. And I just want to share a a quick quotation from her. Um, But she says this concerning spiritual gifts. We turn to these tests or list matching when we feel unsure of how God made us, what our particular giftings are, and how we can best serve within our churches and communities. However, I'm fearful that we've trusted too much in these tests rather than the wisdom given to us by God through our local church communities. And and get this, she says, This may sound backwards, but the best way to discover how God has gifted you is by participating in your local church. Well, that seems like a real innovative thought, doesn't it? But that's how you truly Discover your spiritual gifts. It's not simply by taking some test where depending on your mood that day, you could answer those questions differently. It is by getting involved and serving Christ among his people. Now the significance that this passage that we are looking at this morning and dealing with spiritual gifts points us to is really twofold. Twofold. I'm going to talk about this as we go along in our text, but where we really want to hone in in really looking at all of chapter 12 are these two things. Number one, God has equipped each member of the church to serve the Lord and build one another up. Every member, and it doesn't even matter if you are a child, If you are in your 90s, we have one member uh, in, in her 90s. It doesn't matter what age you are, if you are a believer and you are connected to Christ's church in a true and meaningful way, God has equipped you to serve Him and build one another up. Number two, the diversity of spiritual gifts get point... To the unity of the one body of Christ. The diversity of spiritual gifts that, Christ, that, that, that God has given point us to the unity of the one body of Christ that we can be so unique, yet brought together. By the way, concerning point number one that we want to emphasize, that God has equipped each member of the body to serve the Lord and build one another up. That's why the principle, if you have heard of the 2080 principle, is so wrong in a local church. How many of you ever heard of that 2080 principle? The 2080 principle is, is 20% of the people in the church do all of the work while the 80% kind of just sit on the sidelines. Now, I, 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 I'm very thankful that, that I don't see that big a percentage in our local church of 20 and 80. I think God's blessed us, but I think we do all need to be aware, am I really serving Christ in his local body? Or like we talked last week, am I kind of coming? And that's about the extent of it. As Pastor Dennis mentioned, uh, coming up, we have a Discover CBC class. Uh, really, in order to, to truly, effectively serve in Christ's body, I think membership is the first step that you're saying, I am identifying in an official way with this church. I desire to walk alongside these brothers and sisters in mutual encouragement and accountability. These, this is the people that I'm committing to. That's what church membership says. Now last week, we began looking at truth number one regarding spiritual gifts, the reality that we are one body. Truth number one last week was that spiritual gifts point us to the gift giver. Before we can ever really get an in-depth look at spiritual gifts and, and how we, they, we relate to one another with our spiritual gifts, we have to see that spiritual gifts give us a vertical perspective. Spiritual gifts come from God and God alone. Last week, just quickly by way of review, uh, uh, under this first point is that in verses 1 to 3, we saw that we need to have a proper foundation to understanding spiritual gifts. Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed in verse 1. And he talks about, he gives a warning to the church that, listen, just as you were once led away to pagan idols, to mute idols, there can be a temptation to replace the working of God's Spirit with something that manufactures a sense of religion, but what it is, is it's following our own cunningly devised idols. Christians can act like unbelievers, as sad as it is. And then verse 3, Paul gives a guide to the local church, and he says that the one who is truly filled with the Holy Spirit, who is ministering in the power of the Holy Spirit, number one, they're not, it's not going to lead to doctrinal error. Jesus is accursed. But number two, this phrase, Jesus is Lord, that is characteristic of those who are, who are living according to the Spirit of God. It is not only doctrinal truth, but it is life truth. That Jesus is indeed Lord and He is the Lord of my life. He is the Lord of your life. And that means not doing like what we've seen the Corinthians doing, being out for number one trying to serve god for your own ends and purposes we saw in chapter 11 we can even partake of the lord's supper in a way that is so focused on ourselves and then we saw in verses 4 to 6 that spiritual gifts again point us to the gift giver that god the godhead is the source of all spiritual gifts you remember that contrast in verses 4 to 6 Each verse says there are varieties, but the same. Again, there is diversity, yet unity. We saw that the source of all spiritual gifts is found within the Godhead. That is verse 4, many gifts, but the same Spirit that gives them In verse 5, there are many areas of ministry, but it is the same Lord Jesus Christ that is sovereign and working in those areas of ministry, and we are to serve him as Lord. Verse 6, that there are, uh, God is at work as his people serve him. He is the one that empowers all of the different energies, literally that word activity is, all of the different outworkings comes from God. So we're going to see again this morning, as we finish up looking at truth number one concerning spiritual gifts, that spiritual gifts point us to the gift giver, we are to cling to what truly matters. What truly matters when it comes to this area of spiritual gifts our individual responsibility that we are called to serve Christ's body and at the same time that that the diversity of ways in which God has gifted and wired us points us to the unity of the Godhead itself. You see, we cannot lose this foundational principle because what happens is we become spiritual couch potatoes if we do. What happens uh, to someone that, that every week every day they're going to the buffet line and yet they're never exercising what's going to happen they're just going to gain weight and continue to deteriorate health-wise we can do the same thing spiritually can't we we can read all sorts of books we can be in God's word we can be coming to church but yet we're just leaving it there that's not what God's called us to and this morning, we're going to focus in our attention on verses 7 to 11. And there are, there's a lot to unpack here, and we're not going to be able to get to all of it. But I hope that we see Paul's big picture regarding all of these spiritual gifts that he mentions. So as we continue with point number one, spiritual gifts point us to the gift giver. Uh, let's pause to just bring This morning, our sermon before the Lord. Father, I thank you for the encouragement that this text brings. Lord, I thank you for the conviction that this text brings. And Lord, the way that you work, even when you convict our hearts, Lord, you do it in an encouraging way. For, Lord, You don't leave us in conviction with no answers. You do not bring conviction upon our hearts to just tear us down or belittle us. Lord, You show us your need, our need for Yourself. And, Lord, even in this area of spiritual gifts and, and actively serving You first and foremost in the lives of others, in the lives of the church, Lord, You don't place the burden upon ourselves because it is You as the one who empowers those acts of service. So Lord, we bring nothing to the table except humble, willing hearts desirous to be used of You. And Lord, even to do that is a work of Your grace. So I pray, Lord, that You would humble us that you would bring us to the end of ourselves, and that you would be big in our eyes. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at verses 7 to 11, we are going to see, under this last principle, to prove that spiritual gifts point us to the gift giver, Again, it's nothing new that we haven't already talked about, but verses 7 to 11 show us that spiritual gifts display unity encased in diversity. Spiritual gifts display unity encased in diversity. Now, I don't know if your story's like mine, but I think I think back when, when Rachel and I were, were dating and then the time came as our relationship got more serious that it was time to get a ring. And I had been saving for, for a while and uh, um, there was a, a, a guy that would come to the college campuses um, that, and one of, them, one of the campuses I was obviously a part of and he sold these diamonds that were brought from Israel and they were supposed to be really nice. And of course, you know, you can get really nice diamonds as long as you're willing to uh, pay the price. So um, what I noticed was as the desire for quality of a diamond increased in my mind, as he showed me different types, the size of the diamond decreased. I'm supposed to laugh at that. You get it? Quality? quantity you yeah, one of those has to go down or up well I, 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 I sat there and, and a lot of times you know not good at making decisions off the cuff so I'm sitting there and it's kind of weird anyway because you got to go in this guy's hotel room because he doesn't really have a shop he just travels and uh, you know he said cash only no just kidding <laughs> and please do it quick quickly no Um, So anyway, I I said, you know what, I think that Rachel, from what I know about her, she would probably rather have something smaller that looks nicer than something that's bigger that doesn't look as nice, that kind of has a yellow tint to it. Um, So I went with the smaller. So anyway, then the next decision came, okay, well, what kind of actual ring are you going to get? And, and, And... um, of course, I, I talked to her about that, um, but the, the ring was, was important because you're thinking, okay, this wonderful diamond, no matter what size it is, you want it to be prominent. You've, you've saved for so long, so what kind of a nice setting do you want to put this diamond in to really make it sparkle? How many of you guys can associate with what I'm my, what I went through. Okay, I see three guys, very unromantic group. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Um, But anyway, in the case of the the engagement ring, you have the diversity of the diamond that, you know, Depending what way you look at it, you might see different colors sparkling and shining. And you have the unity of the case of that ring that, you know, that brings attention to the diversity. Well, it's the opposite here of what we're looking at. You have the diversity, the, the setting, the diverse setting of the ring that brings emphasis to the unity of, of the Godhead. That we are all so diverse, and yet what we are exemplifying is not ourselves or our diversity, it is the unity of God. And God has brought us all together to serve one purpose to showcase the glory of our great God and Savior. And we see a lot of diversity right here in verses 7 to 11. Verse 7 presents us with a central truth. This is, um, if you are a teenager or maybe upper elementary, you're starting to learn how to write research papers. Do they still write research papers in school? Okay. I hope so. You never know. Leave it there. (laughs) Um, What's the main thing of a research paper? You have to have a good thesis statement, right? Verse 7 gives us the thesis statement, the main truth of this whole chapter. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The central truth that we see in verse 7, and this is the central truth that you need to walk away with this morning, is each believer has a spiritual gift. It says to each. It doesn't say to some. It doesn't even say if you have reached a certain level of spiritual maturity. Now, don't get me wrong. In order to properly exercise those spiritual gifts, there needs to be a growing maturity in Christ. But it doesn't present any qualifications when it talks about spiritual gifts and believers. It says to each is given. Every believer has a spiritual gift. Last week I kind of gave a, a long definition of a spiritual gift, um, kind of adapted from, from a, a definition that Andy Naselli gave. But I said uh, a spiritual gift is a divinely empowered. Graciously appointed service or ability that edifies or builds up individual believers in the local church as a whole. When we are serving, we are not to be looking at ourselves. We are to be looking at the gift giver. It's not about you. It's not about I. It's uh, it's not about leaving today today. And me, just centered on, well, how well of a sermon did I preach? Obviously, uh, my desire is that it goes well. But I've seen over the years, the Lord use even the worst of things in more ways than sometimes than when I think things go well. And that's not just preaching. It's so many other areas. When you teach your Sunday school class, your gospel project, you're serving in wana. It is not about you. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 12, 6 to 8. Having gifts, and here's the diversity, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Let's pause right there. Let us use them. Maybe before some of us even get to the next part, we need to say, hey, step one is I need to be using my spiritual gifts. One of the dangers of living in such a busy society is that sometimes we get so busy in all of the responsibilities that we have throughout the week that we're not able to serve Christ's body the way that he's wired us. Man, if we look back, And we think, well, you know what? I was so busy running here, running here, getting this done, getting that done. I failed to invest in eternity. How do you think that's going to feel? Let us use them. And then he goes on in specifics, if prophecy in proportion to our faith. If service in our serving. The one who teaches in his teaching. The one who exhorts in his exhortation. The one who contributes in generosity. The one who leads with zeal. The one who, who um, I can't read that. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. In other words, Paul is saying, if God has gifted you, you serve to the fullness of the way that God has gifted you for his glory. It's not about us. Every believer has a spiritual gift. We also see from verse 7 that spiritual gifts declare the work of the Spirit. It says, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Paul could have said to each is given a spiritual gift. But he's highlighting here the reality of the spiritual gift. That it points us to God. It's not something we muster up. This is a manifestation of the Spirit's working, that God is working through us as we serve Him. And then we see the goal of using spiritual gifts. It says, for the common good. Here again, you see unity. Diversity yet unity. The common good of all involved. Now, lest you look over this, Remember our, what we've been looking at in 1 Corinthians. Was this church looking out for the common good? Absolutely not. This was a fragmented church. The common good was a big problem in many ways for this church. But Paul says the common good, another way to translate that is for the helpfulness or the profitability of all. Same word, It's used in chapter 6, verse 23, and chapter 10, verse 23. So the central truth is that every believer has a spiritual gift. Those spiritual gifts, they declare the work of the Spirit. It's not about us. And the goal here is the common good of His people. Let's not make our spiritual gifts be something that's a source of division. Or that it somehow highlights ourselves. Or wow, someone did not recognize me the way that I thought they should. Or someone overlooked me. Or someone is kind of getting a little too close to my sphere of where I minister. And I'm going to be upset about that. It's not about us. So with that central theme in place, that leads us to verses 8 to 10 where we'll spend the majority of our time and time is short already, we're going to look at this diverse display of gifts. Again, we're looking at the diverse setting that showcases the diamond of our God, the glory that is due Him. As we we look specifically at this passage, we have to keep in mind a few things First of all, no list of spiritual gifts that Paul gives in the New Testament. There's a couple places where spiritual gifts are listed. This passage, we looked at Romans 12 uh, on the overhead, uh, Ephesians 4. No list of spiritual gifts are complete. The scriptures are not saying, Paul is not trying to tell us, I've listed these gifts and these are all there, that there are. Paul simply being descriptive of the diversity of spiritual gifts that are present. At the end of each list, you could almost put in etc. As we look at verses 8 to 10, I just want to, to read these for you, and then I don't want to spend a lot of time, but I do want to break down some of these gifts. Now remember... The purpose of Paul having this list is not for us to know every little single detail about what these gifts mean. We'll miss the big picture if we start focusing on the leaves and trying to decipher every little thing. But we are going to break these down a little bit. But look at verse 8. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. And to another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. Are you picking up a repetition of words here? And you need to be looking at your Bible to be able to do that. Verse 9 To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. I have sometimes uh, commentaries kind of try to group these gifts just to provide kind of a sense of order in them. And again, that's not Paul's main point. Um, But I did group some of these gifts together just to help us in processing through them. Uh, Group number one in verse eight that we're going to look at, I've labeled, for lack of a better term, teaching gifts. That God has given certain individuals teaching gifts. In verse eight, for to one is given through the Spirit, not their own abilities... But through the Spirit, who has even given some of those natural abilities and Spirit-empowered abilities, the utterance of wisdom. That word utterance is literally the word of wisdom. Now, it's interesting that this is the same term except switched. Word of wisdom, wisdom of words in chapter 1 and verse 17. It's if chapter 1 and verse 17 of 1 Corinthians says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, or not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So there's a, there's a difference in wisdom of words that would come into the Corinthians' minds as they've heard this. There was this rich, oratorical speech that the Corinthians were trying to copy from society, to build themselves up as some type of spiritual philosophers. That's not the type of words of wisdom that Paul's talking about. You see, in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 14, it says, Paul says, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So this word of wisdom, this utterance of wisdom, is a spiritual gift of teaching and applying the wisdom of Christ crucified to believers. True wisdom. The wisdom of a crucified Messiah, and that He is risen again, as we'll see in chapter 15. And the call that we are to thus follow him in our lives. That is what biblical teaching is all about. It's not about just itching our curiosity or preaching moral principles. No, the word of wisdom is about Christ, Christ crucified, and how we follow him. And then it goes in verse 8, and it says not only has the Spirit given to some the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. This is the utterance, or literally the a word of knowledge. Now as we look at this second aspect here, these two, wisdom and knowledge as we'll see, are closely tied together. The Corinthians boasted of a false knowledge, did they not? Think of 1 Corinthians 8, talking about meat offered to idols. What, what 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 were the Corinthians boasting about? I have true knowledge. These weaker brothers, they don't really know. I have knowledge. And Paul says the problem with that is your knowledge is puffing you up. You see, there was knowledge wrongly claimed in chapter 8. And as we looked at a word or an utterance of wisdom and a word and utterance of knowledge, wisdom and knowledge are closely tied together in Scripture. In fact, in the Old Testament in Exodus 31, talking about God gifting Bezalel, a guy by the name of Bezalel, to work in the temple, he says, "...I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability," or literally wisdom, "...and intelligence, with knowledge and craftsmanship." Solomon prays to God in 2nd Chronicles 1:10. Those should be on the overhead, I think. 2nd Corinthians 1:10. One one more. One more slide o- over. He prays to God, "Give me now wisdom." And knowledge, to go out and come in before this people, for who can govern this people of yours which is so great? This isn't on the overhead for you, but think of Proverbs, the book of wisdom, Proverbs 1:7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So as As one person says, wisdom and knowledge, these two gifts are kind of like different facets of the same reality or two sides of the same coin. This is a knowledge and understanding of Scripture to be able to teach Scripture, again, centered on the crucified Christ, the risen Christ, and to apply that to life. So that's the first example of gifts that Paul gives, teaching gifts. In verses 9 the beginning of 10, we look at what I have labeled group number two, miraculous gifts. Look at verse 9, to another faith, again by the same Spirit. Now, this is not talking about saving faith. Hebrews 1 says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. This isn't talking about saving faith. This is talking about kind of an extraordinary faith in God in the Christian life. As one person put it, such faith seems to be a miraculous ability to trust in God in a specific situation for something God does not explicitly promise in the Bible. There's a faith there, a faith in situations, a faith that God is going to come through, that God is going to work. God has gifted people with such faith. While we are all called to live in faith, some have been gifted with a special ability in this. But note, this is not a faith that dictates what God must do, but it's a faith in what God can do. We do not, contrary to much popular Christianity today, the gift of faith is not saying, I declare this to happen, as if we have the mind of God and and God goes to our whims of what we are declaring. No, it is a faith in what God can do, not what God must do. But then he goes on and he says in verse 9, To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. Again, diversity, unity. It's interesting that our our English translation says in verse 9, gifts of healing. But the healing is actually plural. You could say gifts of healings. Different kinds of healings. Not one specific A generic gift of healing. So what the text is is not saying, it is not saying that somehow people can come and can just summon healing. But we do think of the example of Paul and the apostles where through the Holy Spirit they did heal. Now again, while we are not going to get heavily into which gifts are today, uh, are still active today, which are not, we will talk about that a little bit, just in a summary fashion. But this is not talking about having crusades in which you're having healing services for whoever comes up. This is talking about God specifically using individuals to pronounce what the Lord has done. Next we see, it says, to another the working of miracles, in verse 10. Or literally, miraculous powers, or the working of power. Again, this is plural, miraculous workings. God doing many different miraculous things. Again, we have the the book of Acts, to help us understand what's going on, as Jesus left, he went back to heaven. The, the apostles, it says, Now many signs and wonders were done regularly among the people by the hands of the Lord. Many signs and wonders were done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Acts 5.12 they were given this gift of miracles. I want us to then look at group number three. We see in verse in the middle of verse um, ten to another the ability to distinguish, or uh, uh, to another prophecy, and then to another the ability to, to distinguish between spirits. Now, this isn't talking about someone is having visions, seeing different spirits floating around, and they're, they're trying to figure out who they are. Group number three, I've labeled prophecy and prophetic discernment. There's a gift of prophecy here. To one is given prophecy. Prophecy. Uh, um, Pastor Dennis in chapter 14 is going to go into more detail where Paul unpacks that there were two spiritual gifts here that we see kind of competing with one another. Well, one was overshadowing another. It was tongues and prophecy. What is prophecy? Prophecy, it is not simply telling the future. Prophecy is a spirit-given message of truth given to edify and direct the body of Christ. A spirit-given message of truth given to edify and direct the body of Christ. Now, this prophecy that's being declared, it's in addition to Scripture, okay? So it, it, it... uh, it's not necessarily quoting Scripture, but get this, like we read about in verse 2, it is never in contradiction to Scripture. Never. In fact, in chapter 14, I'm not, I'm not going to steal Dennis's thunder, but notice the purpose of prophecy. On the other hand, chapter 14, verse 3, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation now again as we kind of ask ourselves the natural question well what is prophecy we do see throughout the bible examples of prophet of prophecy In fact, the Old Testament shows us that there's a high standard for a prophet. Deuteronomy 18. uh, In the law it says, And if you say in your heart, How may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously, You need not be afraid of him. In this passage, God is warning the people, do not follow after false prophets. So they would naturally say, how do we know if a prophet's true or not? Does what they say come to pass? In fact, false prophets were to be stoned. They were to be killed for trying to lead the people of Israel away. According to the biblical definition of a prophet, there's a high standard of a prophet in the New Testament, we do see prophecy in action. Sometimes, prophets, prophecy would include the future, just like in the Old Testament. In fact, in Acts 11, 27-28, it says, now, these day, um, now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. That was Prophecy and action. At other times, it's for spiritual exhortation and direction. In fact, Acts 13.3. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. And it says later in that verse, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So there you see, exhortation and direction. In 1 Corinthians 14, Pastor Dennis will show you that prophecy was even used that the hearers that were unsaved, they would hear the message, their wicked hearts would be exposed, they would come to Christ in salvation. You may say, well, Pastor Adam, is this gift of prophecy, is it active today? Well, I'm not going to give you a definitive answer, I would say, if according to the Bible's definition of prophecy, it's, I would say no, because we'd have a lot of people stoned, wouldn't we? At most, at the most, I think what we can confidently say is that God does put certain messages on the hearts of believers And he desires them to share those to other believers for the edification of that individual or even to share words that the Holy Spirit puts on your heart for the edification of the church. But this is not the same thing that we read of in the Scripture, at least in the Old Testament for certain. So at most, I think regarding maybe how we define this gift of prophecy, and if you do studies, people define this gift differently. Our ultimate confidence is in the Scripture. And we automatically know, man, if somebody tells me something and it goes against the Word of the Lord, I know automatically that's not right. Other times, I think we can be so fearful that sometimes God does put things on our hearts, to exhort others, to share with others, and we can hamper that. But if someone comes to you and says, God told me this, so therefore we need to do it, I would be very hesitant. I don't want to ever put you as a church in that situation. Well, God told me this church, so no matter what your objections, we're going to do it. No. God works through the multitude of, counselors. And that's why in the next phrase it says this, another gift is the ability to distinguish between spirits. So what was going on is that there were those who were giving a prophetic word of exhortation to the church, and there were others gifted to evaluate the validity of those things that were being said. In fact, in chapter 14 and In verse 29, Paul gives instruction. He says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 20 to 22, Paul says, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil not on the screen, but 1 John 4 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. You know, and I've had this on different occasions. Someone will say to me, you know, I just feel like the Lord told me this, and maybe it's even in conjunction with myself, and you know, I, well, and they tell me something. You know what I do? I just, if it doesn't contradict Scripture, I say, That's interesting. And I give that to the Lord, and if he works that out, that's great. If not, I'm not putting all of my weight on a person. Be very wary of someone that says, thus saith the Lord outside of Scripture and expects you to take it as gospel truth. But then there's a final category of giftings that Paul mentions here. He says, at the end of verse 10, to another, various kinds of tongues, to another, the interpretation of tongues. You see how prophecy and tongues are, um, in this context, were closely tied together because you have the gift of the one doing the the prophecy or speaking in tongues, and then for both, you have one. One is testing the legitimacy of that prophecy. The other is interpreting the language the tongue. So we have various kinds of tongues that are listed here in group four. And again, um, boy, we're, we're running out of time. But we're going to ask ourselves, well, what are the tongues that, that are being spoken of? And again, if, I'm, I may disappoint you because I'm not giving a definitive answer here. But some people say, well, Tongues are a heavenly language. In fact, chapter 13, we'll talk about this when we get there. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels. So there's this tongues of men and tongues of angels, this heavenly language. In chapter 14, verse 2, For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. Then, verse 4 the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Chapter 14, verse 28 seems to indicate private tongue speaking in this context. He says, If there is no one to interpret, let them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Is this some type of heavenly language? On the flip side, is this gift that's being referred to, is it talking about literal languages? I do find it's interesting that the word that's used here, this um, kinds, is often referring to familial, physical roots or lineage. In fact, in, in 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race. That's the word kinds here. Or family. Or Revelation 22.16, a descendant of David. So you definitely see kind of f- familial, a familial sense to this term, kinds. But also, kinds can simply mean categories. Like when it says the disciples gathered fish of every kind. The book of Acts, it sets the tone for this gift of tongues, that of being actual literal languages we see in Acts chapter 2. I do not think that we can be definitive as to if Paul is talking here about literal languages simply, or, or earthly languages versus heavenly languages. I don't think Paul's point is to necessarily make a contrast, but this is languages. Because someone had to interpret. So even if these were heav- this was some type of angelic heavenly language, the one given, this next gift that we're looking at, interpretation of tongues, would have to be able to translate it. And we're going to tie all this together, so don't worry. The last gift that's mentioned here to another, the interpretation of tongues... Again, why would tongues need to be interpreted for the purpose of the edification of the church? Because all we're hearing is something we can't understand. When I was a kid, and I probably shouldn't use the illustration just for time's sake, but when I was a kid, uh, my grandparents uh, on my dad's side were from Puerto Rico, and they they came over um, to New York, to, um, uh, I forget, New York City, somewhere in there, my mind's going blank. But anyway, as a kid growing up, we lived close to them. We would would spend the weekend with them. And guess where we would go? Because we were too embarrassed to be separated from them. We would go to the Spanish church. I didn't receive a whole lot of edification um, when I was in the Spanish church because I just didn't speak it. I I, I was able to sing three words to one of their hymns, Santo, Santo, Santo. Holy, holy, holy. So I could belt that out. But the rest was... Was what Dennis will preach on? Just uh, you know, a flute with no variation—you couldn't follow. That's kind of what's happening here. And in chapter fourteen, Paul talks about the necessity of interpretation. I want to put this together regarding tongues, and I think we can apply this to some of the other gifts that we often say: Are they for today? Are they not? But specifically regarding tongues, I think it is impossible to be dogmatic about tongues being limited to actual languages only or inclusive of a heavenly language. We can't be dogmatic. I think we can have viewpoints. But I do think, number two, the Bible does seem to go against tongues as kind of ecstatic words of babble. Because even a heavenly language has meaning, hence the need for public interpretation. So, when someone's trying to say, this is how you speak in tongues, and they start coming out with sounds, there should be some question marks going off in your mind. Maybe this isn't legit. I think a third principle that we have to take away from this text, and uh, again, we'll see more of this in chapter 14. Tongues is not an out-of-body, uncontrollable occurrence like is often portrayed in many Pentecostal movements. In fact, verse 26 and 27 It says, what then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or three, only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. In other words, this isn't some, you're out of control. Paul's saying in the first century here, if God has given you a word You are in control to wait to be able to edify the church. So I think that no matter what our view is regarding tongues, one thing we can say confidently, the majority of what we see in churches today is not biblical tongues. Unless there's an interpreter there interpreting. I think we can be pretty confident Regardless of what our view is in tongues, that there is a lot of distortion about this gift. I think another principle tying this together that I want you to just be aware of is that tongues is not indicative of some type of a second blessing or requirement for all believers who are spirit-filled. There's many churches that would say, if you are truly filled with the Spirit, the evidence of that is speaking in tongues. The problem with that is it's adding works. And then lastly, I do want us to be mindful that we cannot put God in a box in our theological conclusions regarding spiritual gifts. Who are we to say what God can and can't do? Again, if it's contrary to Scripture... We have confidence. But there have been individuals that in other countries, you do have reports of individuals who speak in other languages and minister the gospel. It's not even an every time occurrence. Just God has worked. So we must be careful not to put God in a box. As we conclude this morning, I want to bring you one final point of unity amidst diversity in verse 11. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Again, our mind is brought back to the gift giver. That amidst the diversity, it is the Spirit empowering each gifting. And not only that, but it is the Spirit who has divinely apportioned each gifting. Just as in a will, when you're, when you're putting your will together, you are very purposefully listing what goes to your children, your family, for a purpose. God has divinely apportioned your giftings, your wirings. Would you rest today in his enablement? Stop trying to listen to some of the lies of self, the lies of Satan that say, I'm following after my own ways, or I'm not, I wish, wish I was gifted with this, as this person. The Holy Spirit has gifted you according to His will. Each believer is called to serve Christ.